Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And uh, we're doing a couple of episodes here. These are uh, kind of roundup episodes of science that occurred or came to fruition in 2014. Mm-hmm. And we we're recording this at the tail end of 2014, so it's possible uh, in the two weeks that follow that we'll make contact with aliens yep. or, uh, or some other major groundbreaking thing will happen and we will have missed it uh, just because they, it didn't occur or they didn't publish the study for some reason until the last two weeks of the year, uh, in which case we apologize. Also, we want to say this is what we're doing here. We're not trying to, to, to put out an exhaustive, perfect, set-in-stone, launch-it-into-space list of this is the science of 2014. It's more, this is, uh, these are some of the big stories that impressed us, that we think probably resonated with you, and also some of this is, uh, we have some smaller uh, studies on here that you might have missed, and we're going to point out why they're amazing and worth uh, taking a second glance at. Yeah, I think you covered it. Um, this is a two-parter. The first is going to focus more on astonishing science, and the second part is just going to be more extraordinary science. So again, as you said, this is not an exhaustive list, but it's a couple of things that may be familiar to you, probably are, and a couple of things that will make you perhaps kind of, you know, cock your head to the side and say, ah, that has reframed my understanding of existence, or or perhaps not. Um, In any case, let's go ahead and launch into it. And when I say launch into it, of course, I am referring to the Mars Science Laboratory, also called Curiosity. Yeah, Curiosity was really, really one of the MVPs for science in 2014. And uh, you know, even if it wasn't interesting, we, it wasn't a really fun topic to discuss, we'd have to mention it here because there's just no getting around Curiosity. Um, never. No, never. Now, uh, now, certainly NASA's Curiosity rover has actually been on the surface of Mars since August 2012, but this was a very good uh, good year for our eyes and ears on the red planet. Um, let's see, I don't even know where to start on this one, you know? Well, maybe we should just kind of say the, the main mission mm-hmm. for Curiosity is to answer the question, could Mars have one time harbored life? Right. So everything that it does, all the data that it reports back on is trying to scratch at this question. So two years later in 2014, we're beginning to see some of this information put together some of the pieces of the puzzle. And that's what's so fascinating about where we are right now. Because uh, it wasn't just the spectacular landing that it pulled off in mm-hmm. 2012. That in and of itself was a milestone. Um, but now we are seeing Curiosity cruise around there like its own little Wally. Yeah. Kind of lonely looking on that planet and reporting back some things like, hey, there are some key chemical ingredients for life in the gray powder that it's been analyzing and it drilled out of the John Klein rock outcrop. We're talking about sulfur, nitrogen, hydrogen, oxygen, phosphorus, and carbon. And these, as we know, become really important in terms of building life. And Curiosity has been assessing the Martian radiation environment, uh, helping scientists to better understand the hazards that radiation may pose. So we're talking about uh, dangers that could be posed to indigenous microbes and human visitors, should mm-hmm. that occur. And it was determined that the amount of radiation the Red Planet has exceeds NASA's career limits for astronauts. 
Good to know, right? Good to know. Good to know. Now, uh, I'm going to go a little over the top here for a minute and say that just as Moses ascended Mount Sinai to receive the will of God, so too did the little rover spend much of 2014 en route to the Martian Mount Sharp. Uh, Curiosity had already, had already uh, to your point, discovered many of the key elements necessary for life on, on Mars uh, in the past, uh, carbon, oxygen, hydrogen, phosphorus, nitrogen, uh, and standing water, which we'll get to in a minute. But the emergence of life also requires a great deal of time. And as reported by Mark Kaufman in the New York Times, scientists previously only uh, predicted a habitable period of mere centuries or, uh, you know, a few thousand years, mm-hmm. which uh, which is nothing, basically, when you're talking yeah. about the, the, the window for life to emerge on a planet. But uh, with Curiosity's findings, we discovered uh, strong new evidence here that uh, Gale Crater had large bodies of water for millions or even tens of millions of years, to say nothing of lingering uh, water underground. So this year in 2014... Um, among other other things from Curiosity, uh, the window for ancient life on Mars expanded significantly, uh, giving us a vision, a possible vision of a uh, of a blue Mars 3.5 to 4 billion years ago, which is pretty cool. Uh, they also found an ancient stream bed where water once flowed, roughly knee deep for thousands of years at a time. So again, wow. more mounting evidence that water. Uh, had been present and perhaps for a significant amount of time. Now, most recently, and these are early days, mm-hmm. so we don't have the, the full perspective on this yet, the sort of armchair 2020 perspective, but methane was discovered on the planet uh, mid-December here, 2014. And this is really important because since uh, we know living or- organisms produce methane, then that gives scientists some pause to scratch their head and say, hmm, what possibly could be the reason for this methane here found on Mars? So over the course of four measurements and two months on Mars, average methane levels increased tenfold before quickly dissipating. But this cause of the fluctuation is really unknown right now. It could have been created by a geological process known as serpentinization, which requires both heat and liquid water, or it could be the product of life in the form of microbes releasing methane as waste product. Uh, right now, according to Paul Mahaffey of NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center, it's m- too much of a single point measurement for us to really jump to any conclusions. It's pretty amazing, though. And, and with a lot of these studies, especially when we get into water on Mars, and uh, we, we've been gradually learning a lot about Mars uh, and, and its history over mm-hmm. the years. So it's it's easy to kind of you know ease into some of this information and not realize just how how groundbreaking it is, and how much how much more we know about the red planet uh, versus uh, 10, 20 years ago. Um, out of that same press conference, uh, uh, it was also uh, they also broke down some information uh, from May, some findings from May, in which the rover drilled into a piece of Martian rock called Cumberland and found uh, uh, some ancient water hidden within it. And then the onboard instruments were able to analyze the sample, and uh, it uh, subsequently revealed a lot about the probable history of water on Mars. Uh, it measured the ratio of uh, deuterium, which is heavy hydrogen. Um, to normal hydrogen, and that uh, that uh, D to H ratio, as they call it, allows us to gauge how long it takes for water molecules to escape because uh, lighter ho- hydrogen molecules fly toward the upper atmosphere more freely uh, than the heavy hydrogen uh, ones do. So the D to H ratio in Cumberland is about half the ratio found in the Martian atmosphere water vapor today, and so 
NASA scientists believe that this suggests that the planet lost much of its surface water after this rock formed. So the idea here is that most of the Martian water likely disappeared before the Cumberland rock formed about 3.9 billion to 4.6 billion years ago. So, uh, again, just another uh, insight into the history of Mars. And uh, it, I want to drive home with this uh, and in another entry that we're going to mention that with a, with a, a project like Curiosity, you have a lot of stuff that's done in advance, obviously, and you're, you're shooting the arrow off into the future, mm-hmm. um, rolling the dice in some respect um, to, to see how everything's going to land, uh, sometimes literally. And then there's a lot of data you get back. And sometimes that data is crunched for, uh, you know, for, for, for quite a long time afterwards. Mm-hmm. So just as Curiosity uh, is still ongoing, uh, the, the data that it's sent back and is sending back, uh, it, there's a, a continual process of going over it and comparing it and figuring out exactly what it means. Yeah, and there have been some criticisms levied at the project to say that it's not as focused as it should be. But I would say <laughs> here's this monumental uh, project that is, that's a first for mm-hmm. humanity, you know, for Mars and, and having this uh, data collection rover you're probably going to have some unfocused moments as you try to figure out exactly what is present and how to interpret that data and what direction to go in after you interpret it. Indeed. I mean, there are several different experiments on board. There are multiple tools that the scientists are able to use. So uh, it, it's, it's going to get pulled in different directions. Now, the most important thing I think that happened is that uh, on Mars, mm-hmm. the rover took a selfie. Oh, I forgot about this. Yeah, yeah, sent it back. Like, hey, look at me. Well, in 2013, it supposedly drew a penis. Uh, uh, well, accidentally. and so did I. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, we all get bored. We take selfies. We draw penises. Uh, it's just how it goes. So uh, when we send uh, a robotic emissary um, out there through the void to uh, an alien world, it's just going to happen. Indeed. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we are going to discuss... All right, we're back. Yes, uh, the Rosetta mission from uh, the ESA. This, uh, this is a big one, and if it, it, it rivals Curiosity, just in, if not surpasses it in terms of the uh, the scientific findings, the uh, the drama even of uh, getting uh, getting this little guy there, uh, and and just the the audacity of the experiment as a whole. Yeah, we're talking about a ten year mission in the making. When in two thousand and four, the European Space Agency launched the Rosetta spacecraft. Uh, again, we're talking about a circuitous 6.4 billion kilometer uh, trek across the solar system, crossing the asteroid belt and traveling into deep space more than five times Earth's distance from the sun to the periodic comet known as Comet 67P. And now once the spacecraft got close enough to the comet, the idea was to do the unthinkable, which is just to throw a little lander on it, land yeah. on top of it. No big deal. Yeah, I mean, this is this is this is one of those just sci-fi meets reality uh, kind of scenarios, right? That we were going to send this thing out. It's going to spend ten years hibernating uh, to get there, and then not only is it going to uh, uh, be the be the first mission in history to rendezvous with a comet. Uh, because we've had, you know, flybys in the past. Uh, and not only is it going to uh, escort it as it orbits the sun, mm-hmm. it's going to deploy a lander to its surface. We are going to land on a comet. That was that was the the, the plan, and uh, it, it mostly mostly came out okay. <laughs> yeah, it had some um, some 
sort of high stakes moments Mm -hmm. where it wasn't sure whether or not it was going to happen. Uh, The harpoons designed to attach to the comet from the lander did not fire. Mm -hmm. And so that was a bit of a problem in trying to get a bead on the actual comet and, and, um, and find some stasis. Yeah. It has some issues with the, the descent thrusters as well. And so, uh, what was supposed to be a you know, smooth landing and a, and a very anchored landing uh, there in a nice area where you could get plenty of uh, solar radiation to, uh, mm-hmm. to repower its batteries. Instead, it tumbles uh, across the surface and uh, it hits a crater wall. And here it, it is a position where it can only receive a quarter of the sunlight necessary to sufficiently charge its batteries once it runs out of juice. And uh, how much juice? Uh, 60 hours of juice. So... This was a this was a, a fairly big blow uh, to the uh, immediate future of the of, of it. So the, the scientists just had to double down and say, "Oh, well, all right, we got sixty hours of juice. Let's figure out as much as we can about this comet." Yeah, there were so many Zen moments. I think that people had to tap into in the control room. I imagine mm-hmm. because by the time that it deployed from the rocket, it was something like seven hours, right, to make its way to actually land onto the comet. For seven hours, that's white knuckling, you know, hoping <laughs> that it makes it. And then when it is bouncing around, saying, "Oh, I hope that it actually stays." Yeah. And then, oh look, it's it's got some screws that is digging into the surface. It's anchoring, but now it's anchored at an angle that it can't take advantage of the the um the full sun spectrum so as you say we got 60 hours let's get to work yeah it, it uh, landed on november 12th and last contact was uh november 15th um last contact contact as of now and we'll get more into that later but in the 60 hours we did find out a lot about this comment we found out things we didn't expect yeah, and why would you want to study a comet in the first place? Well, they are icy bodies that are regarded as fossils from the mm-hmm. times when the solar system was originating. So this could provide scientists with some primordial prime material to work with. Yeah. I'm sure everyone has seen the uh, the stunning images that we received back of the comet, you know, these sort of desolate, gray, dark images, but still very, very uh, inspiring. Uh, we found, for instance, that if this was not a smooth, hole-shaped body like we thought it would be. Mm-hmm. Instead, it's an odd-shaped, coal-black lump, possibly two comets that uh, merged together uh, at some point in the past because it kind of kind of looks kind of looks like two things, just sort of two big awful rocks crunched together uh, to a certain extent. Found out that the surface is hotter than we guessed and surprisingly ice-free. The first inch of the surface crust is porous, dusty, and contains almost no ice. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the, the comet is only 2.5 miles wide, but it expels so much water that it could, quote, fill an Olympic-sized swimming pool in about 100 days. So bear all that in mind when you think about the challenges of landing on this thing, landing on mm-hmm. a surface that you that, that turn out to be drastically different than what you thought it was going to be. Yeah, and then all of a sudden you have all of this information, like the isotopes. What do they look like in that water? Do they match up with Earth? It, could it be comets or asteroids or both that seeded life on Earth? All of these questions hang in the distance, and it's possible that we may be able to answer them over a period of time sorting through that data. Now, something that I'd, I'm not sure if it was widely reported on is that this comet stinks. <laughs> it's got barnyard smells. Um, sensor devices of the Rosetta spacecraft orbiting the, the comet sniffed out the gas molecules of 67P. 
And according to Catherine Altwig, she's the head of the Rosina Project at the Center for Space and Habitability. She says the perfume of 67P is quite strong with the odor of rotten eggs, hydrogen sulfide, horse stable, ammonia, and the pungent, suffocating odor of formaldehyde. This is mixed with the faint, bitter, almond-like aroma of hydrogen cyanide. Who knew? Nice. I'm always interested to hear what... um other planets smell like uh there's a i think i can't remember if we did a video about this uh at some point in the past i know we did a blog stinky planets yeah stinky comets yeah because the stats are out there you know people say this this planet smells like this this one like that uh sometimes the answer is a little more entertaining than other times a lot of there's a lot of sulfur out there oh i'm sure at any rate it, it 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 might smell, but it has a, a pleasant uh, singing voice. And that's because the uh, magnetic field of the comet oscillates at 40 to 50 uh, millihertz. And the sound is too low for human ears to hear it. But uh, the ESA increased the pitch a thousand times, and they were able to make uh, this song more hearable. And uh, they actually put it up on SoundCloud. Uh, I'll make sure I link to it on the landing page for this episode. but Does it have an unst, unst, unst No, backbeat? no, it does not. It's, <sighs> it's very, very ambient and space music-y. Yeah, nice. I'll do a space music post about this. Why not? Um, but they, um, yeah, they, they took the data, and then it was compiled by German composer uh, Manuel Snift. Uh, so it's it's very pleasant, very spacey. It, seems, it, it sounds like the kind of music a comet would have uh, kicking around in it. Now, we should probably discuss a few cultural aspects of Rosetta as well, including Filet, the name of the lander. Yeah, indeed. Um, Rosetta is, of course, named for the famed Rosetta Stone, the pivotal Greek-Egyptian hieroglyphic artifact, um, uh, which, of course, was vital in our understanding of uh, Egyptian uh, uh, hieroglyphics and what they meant, because we had basically the same text in both Greek and Egyptian. And the idea with Rosetta is that uh, we would gain a better understanding of comets. We would learn the language of comets mm-hmm. in the same way that the Rosetta Stone allowed us to learn the language of the ancient Egyptians. Uh, and the ro- rover is likewise named uh, for the Philae obelisk, which bears a, a bilingual Greek and Egyptian hieroglyphic inscription as well. Now, Rosetta was not without its scandal, and it's not anything Rosetta did, <laughs> but uh, it has to do with a uh, scientist who was wearing a particularly colorful shirt when interviewed about Rosetta. That's right. Uh, Rosetta scientist Dr. Matt Taylor um, wore a rather colorful um, button-up shirt uh, with a lot of uh, kind of pin-up ladies on it, scantily clad ladies. Kind of half-naked ladies. Yeah. And, uh, and, and you know, he's a, he's a bearded dude, uh, tattoos sleeved on each arm. And uh, afterwards, there was kind of an outcry from... From some, from some scientists and also people just observing, saying, "Whoa, what's who, this? Is the guy is the voice of your mission?" And he's he's dressed like he he he's in a he just came out of uh, Margaritaville. What's what's going on? Here? <laughs> yeah, historical moment. Uh, kind of a sexist shirt. That's that's the criticism levied at him. But uh, yeah, I mean, he he took the criticism to heart, and it would appear that he just he just was a bit clueless about it. Yeah, uh, he he did a very heartfelt, uh, you know, tearful apology about it, and was sorry that he'd uh, upset uh, people. And, and of course, the press had really dove into this a lot too, because yeah, I mean, as if the science of of this wasn't fascinating and and mind blowing enough, they had to find another angle to report on. Uh, but uh, they even talked to his sister, um, and and she said, you know, basically he he's a guy who's so devoted to his work, but he's also the kind of guy who 
will lose track of where his car or his car keys might be. Uh, and so he can maybe be a little, a little clueless about some of the, uh, the finer points of life outside of the science environment. But, he didn't realize that his half-naked lady shirt would be distracting. Yeah, but you know, Carl Sagan was putting just straight up naked pictures on uh, other probes we've sent out into the. Uh, into oh the come wild. on! So that I'm- is not. He did not send a Vargas <laughs> pinup out there <laughs> on the Pioneer plat. I- I'm Please. just, I'm just saying line drawing a possible, a possible uh, um, foothold if one were to really, uh, you know, get defensive about that shirt choice. Yeah, yeah. You know, we have a lot of young people that listen to this podcast. Uh, we have some middle-aged people who listen to the podcast. We have old people who listen to the podcast. We have immortal people listening to the but podcast. We may very well be. Uh, it's very possible that someone out there listening to this podcast could live, if not uh, forever, uh, for centuries. And it would be my dream if someone like, say, Aubrey de Grey were listening to this. And he is, of course, the biogerontologist that I have a slight crush on who talks about maintaining the body like a classic car. And that the first person to live to 500 years old has already been born. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the uh, Gray's uh, whole thing is like basically saying, all right, we have this war against death. Well, let's break that war down into battles because wars are fought in battles. So he, he divides it up into these these seven winnable battles, uh, engagements against the enemy. Mm-hmm. And if you can figure out how to knock off each of these problems, then you have the whole thing solved. Well, and what could could be better than replacing your blood with younger blood that would actually have some very beneficial effects? And uh, in the 1950s, Clive McKay of Cornell University in Ithaca, New York, he was the first to sort of figure out that some of this might come into play. He stitched together the circulatory systems of an old and young mouse, a technique called heterochronic parabiosis, and he found that the cartilage of the old mice soon appeared younger than would be expected. That was the first sort of clue that something could be going on here. And then in 2005, Thomas Rando at Stanford University in California and his team found that young blood returned the liver and skeletal stem cells of old mice to a more youthful state during heterochronic parabiosis. And the old mice were also able to repair injured muscles as well as young mice. So here's the spooky thing about this, too. They found that young mice that received old blood appeared to age prematurely. Wow. So it, it works both ways. Yeah. Uh, now, one thing I love about, about these findings, of course, is that it, it just goes into that classic idea that, that maybe old people could drink the blood of the young and uh, sustain their life and opens the door. That one day, to, <laughs> to normalizing to, it to normalizing <laughs> and one day making it possible that old rich men uh, no longer have to just sleep with young women and uh-huh. marry them and, you know, and take hang their out blood. and take and ob- obtain their youth that way. Yeah, uh, they can actually drink their blood or not. Well, not drink it, but they can uh, um, they can take things from their blood <laughs> and make themselves younger. Yeah, I think in the more recent news item that was posted this year that when I uh, put it up on Facebook, I, I think I said something like, millennials, you in danger. <laughs> you got to run. Because more mounting evidence is pointing to your blood as being really beneficial. So then you fast forward to 2012. Yeah, that's right. This is when we're seeing uh, uh, researchers uh, demonstrating that blood from a young mouse or even just a, a factor known as GDF11 from a young from young mouse blood can rejuvenate the muscles and brains of older mice. And the brain is key here because in that we're getting into possibilities for uh, some of the debilitating uh, uh, brain issues that, that have 
received so much attention over the years, mm-hmm. uh, particularly uh, Alzheimer's. Yeah, so if you have this uh, young blood plasma, mm-hmm. that, that growth differential factor 11, and you were to introduce it to a human who has Alzheimer's, you know, what is th- that's the million-dollar question. Would that actually help to reverse the effects of Alzheimer's? And this year, a team at Stanford School of Medicine did indeed start human trials on uh, participants who receive blood, uh, that was under the age of 30 and given to people with mild to moderate Alzheimer's. Yeah, uh, professors uh, Amy uh, Wagner's and Lee Rubin of Harvard's uh, Department of Stem Cell and Regenerative Biology, uh, they report that injections um, of GDF-11 um, improve the exercise capability of old mice that are about equivalent to a 70-year-old human and also improved uh, the function of the olfactory region of the brains in older mice so that they could they could smell more like a younger mouse could smell. Now, I guess you'd have to sort of extrapolate that into the, the sense experience of a human versus a mouse, uh, but but you, you get the idea. And the, uh, the, the theory here uh, is that uh, GDF-11 improves uh, vascularity and blood flow mm-hmm. um, that is associated with increased uh, neurogenesis. Yeah, and the number of stem cells in the brain as well. Yeah. So this is... Really exciting stuff. Um, again, this, this sort of plays into Aubrey de Grey's idea that there are procedures out there. There is technology out there that can help to maintain your body like a classic car. And this is, would be one of them. Exactly. One step closer to immortality. Maybe we get to keep Patrick Stewart forever. If only. Yeah. Yeah. Ben Kingsley, too. Sure. Why not? Yeah. Maybe some more. But mainly those guys because uh, they have the capital. Don't forget Oprah. She's Oprah. listening to you. Oprah, yes. Oprah, oh, I definitely am hoping Oprah lives uh, forever as well. Yeah, I'm sure she's got some R&D out on that. All right, let's see what else happened. Uh, well, it was a big year for Ebola, of course. Um, certainly not the first year that Ebola has been a major issue, but it uh, it certainly made more headlines, especially here in the United States, um, as, uh, as as it became a, a hot topic of discussion, even political uh, topic. Yeah, I mean, we've known about Ebola since the 70s, but this strain, the Zaire strain, first uh, was detected in March in Guinea, and the virus has now infected more than 17,000 people and killed 6,000 people, uh, laying waste to the healthcare systems, communities, and economies of Guinea, Sierra Leone, and Liberia. Um, it looks like we may be coming out of this, um, that this may not be a sort of world pandemic that's going to shut everything down. But I feel like there were some really scary moments there um, and that this has had all of the elements of the human experience because there's cultural aspects mm-hmm. to it. Um, there's some biases that are pretty rampant with it. And then there's just a huge amount of data and research um that has been thrown at this in order to try to stem it. Yeah, we know we devoted a whole topic to Ebola earlier in the year, uh, and that should be linked on the landing page for this episode uh, titled Understanding Ebola, where we just break down the science of Ebola, what we know, uh, and uh, and at the time what, what was happening. And uh, and so we're not going to go through all of that, that information again here. But, uh, you know, basically there you, you kind of had you had the science and then you had the, the politics mm-hmm. and the, the media fear-mongering on top of all that, uh, which made for an interesting overall experience of the, uh, the Ebola epidemic. 
Yeah, and initially it was hard to sort out fact from fiction, mm-hmm. but I feel like, uh, again, there there does seem to be a stasis that has been reached here. And now we do have these raft of studies to be picked through and to try to figure out what's going on and, and, and to help researchers better deal with a deadly pathogen. Um, we do not have a vaccine or a treatment right now that is proven to be effective, I should say that. Uh, but here are two examples of some studies that came out of many, 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 uh, to get a handle on why some people survive infection, scientists compared mice resistant to Ebola with those susceptible to it, and they discovered that a gene in charge of blood vessel leakiness may play a part in the disease severity. That's that's one example. Um, another study published in M-Bio found that the Ebola virus can edit its genetic material, adding extra RNA building blocks. And then these changes may affect how the virus grows in humans. Again, there are a bunch of different factors mm-hmm. that determine whether or not a person is going to survive this. And that's what they're trying to figure out. And in the meantime, however, uh, medical trials that would normally take years or decades to uh, roll out have been fast-tracked uh, to a timescale of uh, even weeks or months. So, you know, we're, we're going to see how all of this uh, rolls out. But, you know, hopefully... Um, with the with the with the trials uh, being sped up like this and uh, a fire being lit uh, uh, under the projects uh, that we'll see uh, we'll, we'll see it come to fruition a lot sooner yeah and that that is the hope but it does certainly feel better to be talking about this now in December uh, than a couple of months ago when it was uh, very uncertain as to what was going on now the last entry is uh it's a doozy and we've talked about it before. And we thought it was so important in terms of challenging our perception about gender or even morphology that we'd bring it up again. We're talking about sex reversed genitalia. I, I remember seeing the embargoed uh, uh, release that was coming out in this one, and and I fell in love right away. And you so, almost broke that embargo just for two, no, I, two seconds. You no, were like, maybe oh. I, I, I certainly had to had to double and triple check to make sure I wasn't breaking embargo on the story because I was just or just would get accidentally you know um, out of control and just push publish. But uh, but yeah, when I first saw it, I knew that this was we were going to blog on it. We we're going to do we're going to do a podcast on this and and heck even refer to it in a second podcast as we're doing now. Um, we're talking about the Brazilian cave insects of the Neotrogla uh, genus. This covers four distinct species, and they mark the first documented example of an animal with sex-reversed genitalia. Uh, this was uh, detailed uh, in uh, an issue of Cell Press Journal's uh, Current Biology. It came out earlier this year, and uh, the, the researchers found that females, quote, insert an elaborate penis-like organ into males the male's much-reduced vagina-like opening uh, during 40 uh, to 70-hour lovemaking sessions. Yeah, um, when they saw this in the act, they did see it lasting for 40 to 70 hours. And this is thanks to the female's inflatable spiny penis mm-hmm. that anchors itself to the male's internal tissues. And during this time, the female, you know, troglot gathers large quantities of sperm that she uses to then fertilize her eggs. And researchers found that trying to pry the pair apart led to separation of the male abdomen from the thorax without breaking the genital coupling, which led them to speculate that the entire mating process is controlled actively by the females, whereas the males play a more rather uh, passive part. Yeah, I mean, basically the situation here, as many headlines uh, referred, is you have a a female penis. You have the, uh, I mean, technically it's a uh, gynosome. 
So it's the it's the female sex organs, but they've taken on a phallic form to insert into the male sex organs, which have taken on a yonic form. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing, and I think it it speaks not just to the fact that there's this rich biodiversity in caves that we're still learning about, but also um, that when we do learn about it, there's a bit of cultural baggage that's put on top of this. And the reason I bring this up is because one of the more amazing things to me in the way that, that this was being reported is that it was spun as, hey, there's a female organism with a penis. Yeah. And in, in kind of glossing over the fact that, hey, there's also a male organism with a vagina yeah. or what, you know, that's functioning like a vagina. So that was that was uh, curious. Yeah, it, it definitely plays into a lot of uh, a lot of our cultural ideas about gender. And as the title of our podcast episode on this uh, uh, suggests, it, it forces us to rethink genitalia, uh, to rethink gender in a sense. You know what? You know, what? on a biological level, uh, makes this a male and what it makes this a female versus what on a cultural level. Yeah, and we won't go back into it, but if you're curious, do check that out because it is pretty astounding when you begin to line up female and male genitalia and see how incredibly similar they are, mm-hmm. especially in their functions. Yeah, indeed. You know, and maybe that's what the rover was trying to tell us in 2013 <laughs> when it was drawing a penis, is that it's just it's a penis-centric world and... Yeah, I mean, a, ro- a rover it. can't even like skid sideways on a foreign planet without the the press going, or maybe not the press, but at least the internet going crazy and saying, "Look, there's a penis on Mars." I know they didn't even see the vagina that it drew. Yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, so there you go. That's our that's our first episode. We're going to do a second episode where we talk a little more about some of the science uh, that occurred in 2014 or came to fruition in 2014, and uh, and and we'll we'll run through a few more uh, uh, bits that you may have missed during the year. Yes. Join us for the next one, won't you? And in the meantime, you can check us out at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's right. It's the mothership. That's where you'll find all of our podcast episodes. Any of these episodes, past episodes we've mentioned before, they are all present there. You may not find them on iTunes, but you will definitely find them at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. Uh, also, we have tons of blog posts. We have videos, links out to our social media accounts. Uh, anything and everything we're doing, you're going to hear about it on that website. All right, guys, what was astonishing to you in the science realm this year? Let us know. You can send us an email at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 